0: All right, everybody, this is the Friday live stream Q&A with uh, Pastor Mike, and I'm here to answer your questions about Christianity, the Bible, all things related to the Christian faith. And our first question today comes from M. Jones, and while I read and then try to answer the best of my ability, his question, know that we are taking your questions from the live chat right now. We're loading 19 more questions, and I'll be answering all 20 of them today. So uh, welcome. If it's your first time, I hope that you are blessed. M. Jones asks, "Why are there aren't there Bibles with the Hebrew order of the Old Testament?" Some say the Hebrew order helps to show additional context and the beauty of the prophets and writings within Israel's history. Any reason to stick to the English order if either's fine? Why aren't there options? Um, let me say there's a, a lot of questions. Okay, there's like thirty questions in there at one. But let me try to walk through some of it with you guys. Just know this: that when he says the Hebrew order, what he means is that not just the 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 Hebrew books, the books that were written in Hebrew, but rather the the order that the Jews use, that Jewish people tend to use, and the order in which they present their Hebrew scriptures, which Christians also have, right? There's overlap between Jewish and um, Christian scriptures. I, I find it funny to say it that way because I'm like, the Christian scriptures are Jewish scriptures. I mean, even in the name itself, Christian means like messianic. Okay, so we're saying like it's all Jewish stuff in my opinion. And we're grafted into it, um, but we'll use that terminology the the Hebrew scriptures and what I'll do is I'll show you guys um, Let me tell you a couple differences. We have first off. There's the number difference Okay in the in the Hebrew Old Testament the there's 24 books, but in the Protestant one There's 39 and so some people think wow the, what's all the number differences, but this is they're actually the same It's the same books. The numbering is different. So Samuel Kings and Chronicles which in my Bible here are in English are in each two books first and second Samuel first and second Kings but in the Hebrew uh, Bible they are one book each okay Ezra and Nehemiah are also joined as one book and then 12 of the prophets the minor prophets 12 of them are joined as one book called the 12 so they have 24 we have 39 but they're the same exact it's the same material there's no difference on the other hand though in Roman Catholicism, they have all the same books as we do, as as the Hebrew scriptures do, um, but they have extra books, seven other books, and a couple other passages they add that are not considered scripture by Protestants or by um, non-Messianic Jews. And um, although any term I use to describe that group is going to be offensive to somebody, um, the Eastern Orthodox have even more. So they have all the Hebrew scriptures that the Protestants also have. They also have all for the Old Testament. They also have all the all the uh, Catholic stuff. And they have more, a few more books and a couple other passages that Eastern Orthodox add. Yes. So um, is the what's the difference then that this question is asking about? Uh, M. Jones is just saying, hey, why is the order different? The books are the same, right? But why is the order different? And the answer there is, I, well, I mean, I couldn't tell you why, right? But what we care more about is the implications of the order being different. I'm going to put on your screen for, so you guys can see it. Here's the order. And I know it's super small, but uh, it's hard to put all these books on your screen without making the text pretty small. So I hope this is, this enlightens you a little bit. So the, the Hebrew Bible, also called the Tanakh, which stands for the, sep- the three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. These three sections re- represent the same Bi- Old Testament that I have. It's just organized in a different way than I have it in my English Bible. And um, the beginning is the same. Right? We have the, the, what we call the law or the Pentateuch, or they would call the Torah. There it's, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's identical. And then right at the beginning of the next section, it's the same, right? Joshua and Judges. And after that, things start to have more variety. So what I'm used to in, in the, these is the historical books in my English Bible being there, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the books of Samuel, books of Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That, that's a chunk there. But you'll see that these things are not in that same spot in the Hebrew Bible. Um, instead, you have Joshua Judges, Samuel Kings. Chronicles is all the way at the bottom. It's the very last book instead of being there in the historical category. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12th. So there's pros and cons of these different lists and the, and the different ways of doing it. Definitely, Jesus was familiar with the three... Um, the, the, the three section categorizing of the Old Testament, because he talks about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Like he specifically refers to them with those three categories. In Protestant Bibles, we have them, we have all the same texts. We have them organized, not law, prophets, writings, but law, historical books, wisdom books, or poetry books, and then prophets. Um, so there is slight differences there. Let me give you a couple of pros and cons of the different perspectives, and then I'll add, I'll, I'll, th- I'll throw a monkey wrench in the middle of it all for you as well before we go to our second question today. So the um, the Hebrew Bible has the book of Ruth. The, the Hebrew, if you go and just buy one in the store, it's probably going to be this way. At least that's what I think is the case from what I can tell. They have the book of Ruth down there at the bottom in between Song of Solomon and Lamentations. Okay, that's interesting because... Song of Solomon is a love song. And so reading Ruth after that, you're gonna be reflecting on Ruth and Boaz after having read a love song between a between a woman who's of a like lower station in society than the man, and that's kind of like Ruth and Boaz. So it's not that Song of Solomon's about them, it's not, but it will change the way you approach the book of Ruth, potentially if you happen to be noticing that. Right? Then you have um things like um oh, but for us, by the way, in the in the Protestant you know, order, we have Ruth after judges. Okay. But that's because Ruth takes place chronologically in the time of the judges. That's the first verse in the book of Ruth, right? So it takes place in the time of the judges. So it's put there. So now you have, you've read through judges, you're familiar with the setting of Ruth. And now when you go into Ruth, you have a historical perspective, not a topical perspective, which is what you get from the Hebrew ordering here. Um, other Hebrew orderings will actually put Ruth after Proverbs, or perhaps, that, because there's multiple, there isn't just one order for Hebrew. Others would put it before the book of Psalms as the first book of the writing. So that there's going to be some challenges there that people have. Um, the Hebrew Bible that we have here that's popular today has the prophets closer to the kings. And I, I like that, right? the There is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, right? You're, you're reading this, these histories of Israel heading into their kingdom, the kingdom phase of, of kings, I should say. And then you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. You're reading that right after reading the context in which these people are prophesying. Okay, I like that. Because in the English Bible, we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations down at the bottom. You've read through Kings, and then you've read tons of other stuff before you're reading the prophets who are prophesying during that time. I like that. Helps you remind you of their setting. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, Lamentations is here between Ruth and Ecclesiastes. That's interesting. Um, Maybe... Lamentations is, you know, if you read it in that context, you're like, Lamentations, okay, they, it's about the temple being destroyed. In the in the Protestant Bible, we have it after Jeremiah, right? Because Jeremiah is the weeping prophet telling them they're, they're going to lose their temple, they're going to be destroyed and taken captive. Lamentations is the regret, the lament, after all that takes place. So it, it makes a lot of logical sense for it to be after Jeremiah. Um, I, I like it better that way personally. It's just a personal preference. But if you have it, Lamentations after Ruth... Then what you've got now is you've got a book um, of a woman who lost everything, right? Naomi lost everything, was in lament, and then had it restored to her in an unexpected way, even through a Gentile who was a, a good Gentile, so to speak, right? And Lamentations has them heading off into the foreign land, having lost everything, hoping for the restoration. So there actually is like this thematic connection between Ruth and Lamentations. Then you have Ecclesiastes after Lamentations, which is a very very somber and sad <laughs> and tough to go through. So, it's interesting that you'd have Lamentations and Ecclesiastes together It'd be a very depressing uh, but not hopeless, not hopeless, but a very down moment in the text, interesting if you ask me. Um let's see in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Job feels very poetic, right? In the in the ordering here, Proverbs and Song of Solomon sandwich the book of Job. Well, these are very poetic You know books, so Job feels more poetic in the English Bible. Job is after Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther than Job. Then there's the other poetry books, and so you're like Job is kind of in the middle ground between history and poetry in the Hebrew order. Now this doesn't—I'm not telling you what Job is. I'm telling you how it affects you when you read it in those contexts. So it does impact you potentially. It does impact you. Um, The Hebrew Bible ends interestingly with Chronicles instead of the Protestant, you know, English Bibles typically end in Malachi. Um, Chronicles starts with Adam and it ends with the a, a promise of a restoration into the land. Okay, so th- it's it's almost like Chronicles at the end of the Hebrew Bible is a survey of everything so far. It, almost, it's not quite a survey, but, but it has that feeling being situated there. Malachi ends with this hope of the Messiah and the forerunner for the Messiah, which is John the Baptist, right? So it obviously makes a lot of sense to end with Malachi as well. Either way, I think is okay. And that's that's gonna be my my bottom line here. Uh, either way is okay. The, the books are inspired. I do not think the order is inspired. Some people do. They think that you have to read in a certain order. Um, but even the order I just showed you, the Hebrew Bible, is probably not the same most common order during the days of Jesus. During Jesus's time, we probably have a slightly different order that is more reflected in the Talmud, but not necessarily in a lot of Hebrew Bibles you can buy in a store. So there was variety. And the initial books, the Pentateuch, They tend to always be in the same, well, they just are always in the same place, in the same order. But when you get down to the writings, you get to that third section, that's where there's lots of variation in even Jewish sources and even earlier Christian sources. Here, I think we should be gracious to each other. We should think about, maybe on your own, read books of the Bible in different orders. You know, why not um, try reading Isaiah after you've read through uh, Kings, Right? Because then you're getting more of Isaiah when, when, they're, when, when he's actually active. You know, when you read about Uzziah, maybe you pause there and you go to Isaiah. And it was after the death of Uzziah that Isaiah prophesied. So it just helps you to just mix things up a bit to realize that the, the Bible is, there's a lot of variety going on there. So um, let me just make sure I got your question in full and answered it. Um, why aren't there Bibles with Hebrew order of the Old Testament? That I, I mean, I can't tell you like, it's not a conspiracy. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the early church is more influenced by Greek. Right? they're more greek speakers and the septuagint order in the greek translation of the old testament more influences them whereas the hebrew tended to be a slightly in hebrew tended to have a slightly different order and so they seem to be different different language influences so i wouldn't call it anything weird or to worry about it's just kind of how history is um some say the hebrew order helps show additional context i think both orders help show additional context and that's why we should always be aware that these books Interrelate in different ways and that's healthy So I think both orders are helpful in different ways Any reason to stick to the English order Um, just because we're very used to it And so when you're looking you open the Bible looking for a book It's easier to find it because it's always been there for you Just like if I was if I was raised with the Hebrew Bible I'd want to stick with the same order too just to find it Just to find it more easily I wouldn't make a beef about it either way Um, Why aren't there options because publishers probably realize that when they When they change the order of Old Testament books and put it on a shelf People are going to look at it and go, no, I'll buy the other one that has the order I'm used to. Okay, so you could blame publishers, but I'm going to say it's people that lead the publishers to do it that way because people are used to it. They want it that way. Not an issue I'm going to debate about. Something interesting. Let's go to question number two. This is an anonymous question that says, regarding divorce, um, you mentioned that my wife just handed me a note. So I got to tell you guys something. All right, I'll just do it now before I forget. Um... This is my wife. She's great. She hands me a note. Um, update Bible Thinker app. Look, if if you have our Bible Thinker app on the smartphone, which we do have a free app in the app store for you guys, you can update it right now. If you go to um, uh, your your wherever you update your apps, and so it's just called Bible Thinker. If you want to look for the app, and you could uh, download it on your phone. It's got video content, searchable. It's all free stuff. You could you could watch things by series, or you could listen to just the audio. So you can track a whole series. It's all there for you. Mm-hmm for free Um, but you need to update the app we just did an important update and this is an announcement for anybody who's a supporter of my ministry as well if you're a supporter of Bible Thinker and you don't need to be I'm I'm like overjoyed at those of you who just consume tons of content and you never you never feel the need to support like that's that's the agenda that's the goal of this ministry is free resources widely available Um, but for those who are supporting we've just changed over our our support like Service we were using something called cornerstone now we're using something called kindful So everyone who's got an account and is given through cornerstone has to re-sign up through kindful We've found that kindful is going to much better meet our needs and especially with international issues with being a large ministry Even though we were small staff um, Yeah, we need to do that So so you'll need to reset up and you can just go to Biblethinker.org to sign up for that. We've actually We've canceled everybody who's giving our cornerstone. So everyone's have to re-sign up if you want to continue Supporting all right question number two. This is regarding divorce anonymous question says you mentioned that verbal Emotional abuse is only a valid justification when it is extreme How do we think biblically about what God would consider to be extreme? I'm finding it hard not to doubt my own perceptions, but my husband is in complete denial Also where the husband has essentially separated from the wife within the marriage Is it still not permissible to remarry your ministry is a comfort and a blessing? Okay, I, I I have to limit myself, for your sake, on how I answer this question. There, it is. It is. An, it is a very unwise counselor and a harmful counselor who gives you major life decision advice based off of knowing three sentences of your situation. I cannot do that to you. It would be mean and cruel. And as though, as much as you are desperate to get clarity on your situation, I don't have. And I'm forgiving for my limits here. I don't have clarity reading only a few sentences about your very specific scenario so that's why when i taught that divorce and remarriage thing i taught principles that you would need to apply carefully into your life and i know there's sometimes a disconnect where it says okay i hear the principles i'm not sure how to apply them and that's what this question asks me it asks me to take these principles which you've heard and apply them to you specifically but think of how what danger i bring upon myself and you when I give you counsel about what to do with your life knowing this much about your scenario So what do I mean by extreme? Um, I think like okay, I've been a counselor for many years. I've seen tons of situations I've seen a situation to be very open with you guys where a, a father hit a son with his fist It was the only time it ever happened in that family. It never happened again. There was immediate repentance. There was sorrow over it. the The father took ownership. The son was not in danger. I'm glad that family stayed together. I'm glad they didn't turn this into well. That was extreme. So now we can now I'm, I can say I could disown my father and and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, there's another other situations where there was ongoing regular abuse. Right? There was a, a situation where I heard of ongoing regular sexual abuse from a um, stepfather, and within within a few hours. Of me finding out about it the man was in jail like we got him arrested immediately We we, we took did everything we could to stop that situation never happened again. Never happened again um, But imagine if one of these people messaged me Mike my dad my dad hit me. What do I do? Or my, my dad has touched me inappropriately. What do I do? And I thought I'm just gonna give them advice when I really don't know their scenario And so I I, I don't want to do that for your sake. What if I'm wrong and you take my counsel? <laughs> So, um, yeah, how do we think biblically about what God would consider to be extreme? I mean, you can look at some examples. Let me give you principles that you can apply to your situation. Um, when, uh, uh, when we look at the scripture and you, and you ask yourself, when do people say violate the, the structures that God has put in place that are, that are good structures, like whether it's government or family, when do they violate those structures and it's often because the person's genuine safety is at risk. Their physical safety is truly at risk. Or there's just, I think, extreme oppressive behavior on the part of um, one person to the other. So they flee. Okay, David fled. He he had committed himself to Saul. Saul was, was, was uh, ridiculing him, persecuting him, and even actually trying to kill him. Even though it was a flare-up moment, it wasn't like he always did it. But that was enough, right? <laughs> and so, boom, he's out of there. Um, those things would be obvious the the tough ones are when it comes to things like but it's emotional pain or it's it's emotional suffering And here I am not equipped to help someone online. You need to reach out to godly counselors meet with I mean It's your marriage. It's your life meet with multiple counselors Talk to them about this. Don't just have a five-minute talk with a pastor like meet with counselors pastors aren't always counselors sometimes they're just teachers You need to meet with someone who can sit down with you, meet with you, hear all that's going on. You completely bear your heart to them, and they give you the counsel you need. Don't hide what's going on to protect your your, your sense of um, being embarrassed. Confide in people you can trust, right? Confide in them. Get their advice from you to apply this stuff. You said you're finding it hard not to doubt your own perceptions, but your husband's in complete denial. Yeah, that's exactly why you need a third party. A third party. If it was me, if I had the time to do counseling one-on-one with a lot of people, which we get lots of requests and I'm just not physically able, I would spend hours just listening to you before giving you any counsel. Um, also where the husband has essentially separated from the wife within the marriage, I think that that is, um, uh, it, you're giving me one sentence. I'm saying keep trying <laughs> that, that based on one, but I don't know your situation. So God give you wisdom. God give you wisdom. I'm glad my ministry has been a comfort and a blessing to you. Consider my counsel incomplete. My real advice, find someone you can tell every detail to. And don't protect yourself at all. Don't just say what your husband's done wrong. Like you tell him like open heart, open life. Just this is what's going on. These are all the details. I'm not going to exaggerate. I'm not, and I'm not going to minimize. Now, what, what do you think I should do? And then if you're not totally clear, you get more counsel from more people. That's just, I, I think it's your only option. So God help you. God bless you. God give you wisdom. Number three, the question is from Leslie Johnson. It says, "Hi, Pastor Mike, can you please uh, explain how we should properly interpret Matthew 24 verses 45 through 47? I know JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, think it's referring to their governing body, but I'd like your opinion. Thanks. Okay, um, Matthew 24. We're going to look at it together. This is the uh, governing body verse. This is probably the faithful, witness, the faithful uh, servant verse. Um, let me take us there." Just a second, Matthew 24, 45 through 47. I'll put it on your screen as well, everybody. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Uh, this is the NASB version, New American Standard. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Let's remember this phrase. Whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Um, the, uh, the NASB is pretty, is more like a literal translation, right? Leans more that way. So you're going to find like this phrase, faithful and faithful and sensible slave, which is hard to translate in our modern vernacular because we, we hear slave and we, we have a modern understanding of that word that is actually different than it is in ancient times. But the idea is that Jesus is talking about someone who's a servant, Right and the master obviously represents god in this passage it obviously represents god or jesus who is god coming and rewarding that servant after some time period and what is he he's faithful he's faithful to the to the master to the to to god and he's sensible meaning he's making good and wise choices that, that just like the 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 servant has tasks they have authorities they have things like that um and Blessed is that slave whom his master finds soon when he comes. He will, he will be in charge of all his possessions. He'll be elevated up and he'll be given even more authority. And if he's evil, he'll be punished. Okay. Um, now, the, the Jehovah's Witness organization teaches that this is them. That the faithful, and they, they use the term faithful and discreet slave, but sensible is what we have in, in, in ASB. And they teach that the organization is them, that, or that the slave is an organization and the organization is them. Now, early on, from what I've read in JW Literature, Early on, it was the Jehovah's Witnesses all together. Then it was the organization sort of more exclusively. And now the faithful and discreet slave, it has, it has shrunk down to focus more on the, these specific leaders, the elders, the, what's called the governing body of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are the faithful and discreet slave or the faithful and sensible slave. There's a few problems with this one is that jesus is just offering a general principle as he does many times in his parables And in his discussions about the coming uh, the second coming. He's like, hey um, I'm gonna i'm gonna leave i'm gonna depart and you christians plural you are being given responsibilities and this would refer if, if you're in you know charge of a household to give them their proper food and order this would probably refer to genuinely servants in the church people who are blessing and serving others. So anybody who serves in that um, teaching leadership position in the church. So there, I would agree that there's a, I wouldn't call it a governing body. That's the problem. That's a problem. It's not one body. It's rather each person has an opportunity to be this faithful and sensible servant for Christ. Um, One of the problems with this though, is the Jehovah's Witness organization uses this to claim that it's almost like a prophecy that Jesus is telling them, hey, there's going to be this organization that we're going to call the faithful and sensible slave or discreet slave, and they're going to be the ones you can trust. So the question is, who is the faithful and sensible or faithful and discreet slave? Who is this one? And then the JWs are like, it's us. It's our organization. It's our governing body. They're the faithful ones. Jesus is not making a prophecy. He's offering a, a warning. Not a prophecy. There's no promise that there will be some specific faithful and sensible slave. Instead, he's like, will you be this or will you not? Right? If you are this, right, you're going to have this blessing from him, right? But, verse 48, as you read on, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. I mean, look into the history of Jehovah's Witnesses. This describes their leadership in the past. Yes, drunken, I mean, I know this sounds crazy if you're JW, but look into your own history, the drunkenness and the abuse of the people who are serving the organization. Absolutely, this is the case. Let's look at the deaths from blood transfusions and the um, abuses from the leaders and stuff. Um, If they find that, the master of that slave will come in a day when he does not expect him and an hour in which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The bottom line is this. Jesus is offering basically a, 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 a wake up call to all those who are serving others in the name of Christ. So it does apply to leadership. But it is not a promise about some special organization you have to find and then you can trust them. Rather, it's kind of a threat to whoever serves in Christ's Christ's name that they better be a faithful, which the JW organization is not faithful to Christ because they've reinvented Jesus and they've had false gospel. And they're not serving the people that follow them because they're they've had many abuses to them. They use them as props um, to prop themselves up. So that that would be my answer to that. It um, doesn't fit the context at all. It's treated as a prophecy when it's really more like a warning. It applies to anyone who serves others in the name of Christ, and it's act and they act like it applies specially to some special elite chosen organization. All right, question number four. Uh, Kevin Lionel says sin is objective. But isn't it sometimes subjective? For example, you may be convicted of a certain activity and won't do it, but I do, or vice versa. How many, uh, and how modesty is different around the world. You may be convicted of a certain activity and won't do it, but I do. Oh, conviction, like having a conviction. I understand your question now. So I might, have. I might feel that it's, say, say I feel that it's wrong to drink. It's, I know it's not actually wrong objectively wrong to drink drinking is something that god gave us to be um, enjoyed and to thank him for right but it doesn't that make it subjective that i subjectively say for me drinking is wrong um no no because it's it's okay it's you could say it's subjective in the sense that it's applying differently to different people in different situations but it's the same objective rule because the rule is drinking inherently is not wrong if you can do it with gratefulness and thankfulness to God and in a way that it does not put you in bondage and it's not un- unhealthy and harmful for you and does not lead others into troubles like right? T- causing your brother to fall, that kind of thing. But that's, that's the, the, this rule applies to me. And I'm like, but I can't do it in thanks to God. I have a conviction that maybe is not binding on every other people, but the rule, the objective rule is, don't violate my own convictions my convictions can make my life stricter and that's okay. I could be honoring God by not partaking because that's my situation. So that doesn't, it, there are objective rules I think that are applying to convictions and those rules are objective. Um, it's kind of like saying when the light's red, you stop when it's green, you go. And here's on the issue of drinking where we all drive up to the light. And for some of us, it's green and for some of us, it's red, but the rule is applying the same way. Um, I hope that, that helps to some extent. You also asked the following. Um, and how modesty is different around the world. Um, I think here we have, okay, modesty is different around the world. That's true. But we're talking about pop culture version of modesty. L- let me say this. God has an understanding of modesty for men and women. And that is our objective rule for everyone. Now, there are other objective rules for Christians, which is not stumbling others, not having the appearance of evil and things like that, that might cause us to yield and become even more modest than God would require naturally because of the environment we're in, the people we're witnessing to, those we're sharing with because of the conscience of others. And so we, it's always in the Christian attitude that I will willingly take on extra restrictions on my life, even though I have those liberties, as an act of love towards others. That's how I would view the modesty thing. Most or many of our cultures, they're violating certainly God's solid rules on modesty. Um, Even if they're not violating, this is Southern California, right? We have cultural rules of modesty that are definitely lower than God's. Like this seems very obvious to me. Okay, you go to a beach and you see a bunch of people with almost no clothes on. It seems obvious to me that this is not the modesty that Christians are called to. And there's plenty in my culture who will disagree. What I'm suggesting is, here I think culture's wrong, violating the objective rule of God. Okay, so I think that, yeah, I think bikinis are obviously immodest. Is this, how is this controversial? It's, it's, how, I don't know how this is controversial <laughs> at all for Christians. I think that bikinis are obviously, doesn't mean that women wearing bikinis are intentionally trying to stumble somebody. I think many of them are just completely, have no conviction about it. Here's a case where conviction is too—it's um, too slight. Conviction doesn't rise to the level of what is actually our calling. It's okay if your conviction rises higher than your calling, but it's not okay if it rises lower. And this is, I think, the case because our culture is our culture is immodest. Um, rather than having rules of modesty, we should pay attention to. But I think that there's still objective rules from God on these issues. I don't think these are subjective. I, I think there's even underneath the the sort of different treatments of things, whether you call someone Sir or, or by their Mr. or Mrs. or first name, that these can zoom out and see uh, more objective policies, moral rules, that are guiding and directing us in the different situations we're in. Gary Leister says, are there really accidents? For example, a freak car accident. How do we square God's will with what might seem like a totally random event or accident? Um... Well, I guess it depends on what you mean, Gary. Let, let, let's let's try to tackle this a little bit. Okay, if you say, are there really accidents, like a freak accident, do you define accident or totally random event as something which God did not plan for from the creation of the world? Okay, well, I mean, if you define it like that, I'm going to say there are no accidents. Because God has planned, f- and I'm using my words carefully, he's planned for every event that will take place. But it seems to me that there are some things that happen as a um, secondary result of the way God has orchestrated things and the decisions people have made, that there's no like willful intentionality that that, um, you know, that that when that thing happens, it's gonna happen, I'm gonna make sure it happens this way. Sometimes things are happening that way as a result of other choices. How do I explain this? Um, if I wear, a, I wear hats a lot, actually, not on streams, but I wear hats all the time and I go out, I just throw on a hat and I have like a crease on my forehead when, if I take the hat off and I have hat hair. To me, this is not an intentional thing. <laughs> I don't like this exactly, but it's just, this is what happens if you're going to wear a hat. And so there's some things that are taking place in the world that are just happening. If you're going to allow free will and you're going to allow, and the laws of physics, the way that they are, they're just going to happen. But this doesn't mean that God's like um, unable to plan for that thing. And so I, I consider those things to be things that really happen. I, I don't look at, say, hard determinism, God causing every individual thing to take place as it does. I think sometimes God has made a choice to allow certain things to take place. And this naturally, because we live in a world that has consistent laws, this naturally causes other things to take place. Here I would say some of these even evil things, some of these bad things are simply the consequence of the good thing God is allowing, and so in this, we have to have some category for saying, you know, that was like, maybe accident isn't the right term, but it certainly is not, it it was something God planned for, but not caused, I would, I would maybe put it that way, words kind of fail here a little bit, um, there are accidents, of course, in the sense of no one, no, no humans were intending for that to happen, that's a different question, though, um, Number six, no more questions. We have. We're all full. I got all 20 questions. Thank you guys for joining me. I do this every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's California time, depending on whatever time of year it is. And um, and you're always welcome to join with your questions before, during, or after. And you can check it out on the, on the podcast, Bible Thinker, or on our website, BibleThinker.org, or on the app, which I just told you all about. Make sure you update your app if you already have one. And um, here's the question. Number six. Anonymous question. Please teach us to talk about why Christianity is true. Three to five points in two to three minutes. Baptized January 31st. New Christian here. Learning so much from you. Thank you. Oh, dear. You know, when you summarize hugely important issues and things, that's the hardest. It's easier to talk about it for an hour sometimes than it is for three minutes. Um, Why is Christianity true? Let me offer some chief points that come to my mind right now. One, Jesus rose from the dead bodily okay i want you to see jesus as like th- in here's like a th- in idea wise here's like a thought exercise as like an octopus so to speak um jesus is in a sense like an octopus in that if you grab an octopus whatever its arms are mm-hmm. grabbing you're gonna get that too you get that get that picture. You're reaching to the water and you grab an octopus, and it, it's got its arms out and its suckers are holding on to some stuff. You're gonna get all of those things with the octopus. Jesus grabs so many things with him when you take him. So when you realize that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, you get the apostles being commissioned by him, and, and you can argue for this. You can logically work through it. But the theory that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he oopsed on the apostles and the message that they brought afterwards is Really unlikely. Like this seems. This seems like you. You want to try to like chop the tentacles off, so to speak. Um, it's obvious that Christ leads to the apostles. When you get Jesus rising from the dead, you get the whole Old Testament as being God's word, because Jesus, this resurrection from the dead means that Jesus did what he 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 did what he said he was going to do, and it means he was who he said he was. And that person, who Jesus said he was, and even atheist or secular non-Christian historians will agree, Jesus thought. He was the guy fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That he believed that that Old Testament was really inspired by God. That he be- he believed that that God had um that the God of the Bible is true. The God of the Old Testament is the real God, and that he was God's very agent to bring in God's end times plans for the world, right? To to basically, this was what creation was about was was the moment of Christ showing up, and this is what Jesus believed about himself. Even if you don't believe the Bible to be inspired, he if you get him, you're going to get those beliefs that he did. Jesus also believed that he was dying for your sins. Re- read the gospel of Mark. Read read um, his allusions to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and stuff like that. So Jesus' beliefs, like if you get Jesus, you get all of this. So it's like, what's my, here's like my one point case for Christianity. Jesus really rose from the dead. And to establish that someone rose from the dead, you just need two things, right? You need that they died and then they were alive after. to make it super simple. That's all you need. This person really died and this person was really alive after. But here's where I think God has so sovereignly orchestrated history that even us 2,000 years later have a ton of evidence to help support this ancient historical claim. So first off, Jesus is a person of history. If you deny the historicity of Christ, you are are far out. You're way off. uh, Historically speaking, nobody does this um, except for a couple... Uh, literally like a couple guys, everyone thinks are wackadoodles. Um, that's just the reality of it. Nobody thinks that not atheists. Not I mean, Bart Ehrman. Okay. He's like, Jesus existed guys, get over it. (laughs) So Jesus existed. Um, in addition to that though, we have the fact that he died and didn't just die in general. I've I've had, I've had, um, uh, some skeptics respond to the death of Christ. So some Jew named Jesus died. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's way better than that. Like you're just acting like a teenager now <laughs> so um jesus died on the cross under pontius pilate so we know like how he died and when he died that's very very important so he he died on, under on the cross under pontius pilate okay we also know uh, historically speaking this is stuff that a consensus over 90 percent of historians are going to agree on regardless of whether they're christian or not jesus had his 12 disciples who were his followers who believe they were part of this messianic movement. Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus died, these followers fell away. And this is again, what the historians are going to agree on. Right? If you just start with history and not, not, um, inspiration and stuff like that. Then Jesus, after his death, they believed these same people who fell away and ran and hid and embarrassingly denied Christ and all that. They then believed, genuinely believed that they saw him alive in multiple different occasions, in, in sometimes with multiple witnesses around, that they saw him alive, him, the same Jesus, alive, and it convinced them that he had risen from the dead bodily. So we have these people that really believe Jesus rose. And the question you can ask is, would they be in a position to know Jesus rose? And the answer is yes. Like, do you think, I mean, they're more familiar with death than we are. We, we're very separated from it, right? Someone dies, the coroner takes them away, you know, they get... They, they get taken care of and we might see them in an open casket, but it's all very, we're very separate from it in our modern, modern culture. Not so them they were intimately involved in that whole process. They knew Jesus had died. It's one of the most certain facts of history, according to a non-Christian scholar, atheist Gerard Ludman, who says um, Jesus, Jesus's death is one of the most certain facts of history. Then we have the fact that these disciples saw him or at least believed they did. Now you could say, well, they would have made it up except if they were willing to lie, why did they flee? Right? When Jesus was put on the cross, they fled in fear. They, they departed, they gave up the Christian thing and something changed their mind and made them willing to die for this thing instead. Like they were willing to die because they believed Jesus rose. That's pretty heavy evidence that at least they were genuinely convinced. Then we have guys like James, who wasn't a follower of Christ that appears to have been converted by seeing Jesus alive from the dead. We have Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, who was converted, according to him, by seeing Jesus alive from the dead. And then he based his whole hope on this, 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then there's no point in this whole Christian thing. So what we have is credible witnesses who don't seem to have ulterior reasons to lie about these things being willing to die for their claims about the resurrection of Jesus. Just that alone is actually pretty strong evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Now you can go into more. You could talk about fulfilled prophecy. You could talk about the impact Christ has had perhaps in your own life. I mean, like if he really has, Jesus really changed my life. Okay, maybe someone rolls their eyes at at, at that, but hey, that that impacts me a lot. Um, There's a lot of other evidence we could bring as well to help support these things. And there, but you're asking me to do it very briefly. So I'm gonna try and do that. If you get Jesus' resurrection, what you have is confirmation about his identity. Like, in what world does Jesus show up and say, I'm the son of God. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise for your sins. I'm fulfilling the Old Testament. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one through whom all can be saved. Then he dies and he rises again. In what world do we then theorize that he was wrong about all the stuff he said? <laughs> he rose from the dead. So I think the resurrection of Jesus is like the one point um, thing that we need We need to present about Christianity. Interestingly enough, the early church did do this in the book of Acts. They 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 appear to have argued their apologetics had sort of two rungs to the uh to the non-Jews, they and, and the Jews, but they would, they would reach to these the, the all people with the resurrection of Christ and eyewitnesses saying, you know, we we'd seen him risen. Uh, many, many eyewitnesses that were offering their testimony. Um, the uh, the second branch was prophecy fulfilled prophecy in the book of acts and in other places prophecy as evidence that christianity was true and so that's something i didn't talk about it's a lot more complex but they tended to do this to jews specifically not gentiles not because gentiles aren't worth the effort but because they don't they're not familiar with the old testament when people have a bible background i want to talk about prophecy when they don't i want to talk about the resurrection of christ there's my thoughts on that number seven ian campbell Says uh, and, and Campbell. By the way, Ian, your last name C-A-M-P-B-E-L. Does anyone call you Ian Campbell? Because in my head, like like I always say February with two R's, right? February. Because in my head, it's the phonetics. Anyway, does anybody call you that, or is it just Campbell? I'm curious. Uh, you say, I'm a hobbyist game developer and have started making Bible-themed games. I want to include Jesus in one of my projects but feel uncomfortable writing words for him. Any advice? Can I even do this? Um, I, I, I think that um, uh, in theory it's possible. I think you just have to be super careful. Um, the, the reverence that we have for Christ is super important. Um the involvement that he would have in something like that. I'd imagine in a project like that, you don't want him, you wouldn't want that presence, uh, you know, presentation of Christ to be overly present because the more he talks, the more you're going to find things that look like deviations from what Jesus would have said. And this is is the problem, uh, one of the problems with with trying to do a project like, say, the Chosen TV series. Not inherently a problem, okay? I, I consider it fan fiction. And I think if people look at it that way, they could they could go, oh, this is interesting. Oh, an interesting decision they made. I don't consider it a reenactment of any kind. Um, and uh, the more they have these characters talk, the more they're going to have inevitably deviations from you know what what was probably what really happened. It's just inevitable. It's unavoidable. So one way to deal with that is to just not have him doing as much. <laughs> uh, other ways to do it as a game developer is you could do things that are more like. Um, allegory, right? You have a character who represents Christ, but isn't Christ. And so C.S. Lewis does this with his um, Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is the Jesus character, but nobody thinks for a second that what Aslan says, Jesus is saying. You know, there's no confusion there. So that's another approach you could also have. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I would encourage you to be very careful. The more you know Jesus, the more you study theology, the better you'll be able to consider these things and to know what the teachings are of Scripture. But if you have an actual Jesus character saying things that Jesus didn't actually say, I, you're inevitably going to be moving into at least concerning territory. And the more cautious and thoughtful and careful you are, the better. Um, yeah, there's pros mm-hmm. and cons, though. Um, I don't know if scripture has given us clarity on that. Does, maybe do the game in a way that everybody knows. You're not trying to say Jesus actually says this. It's it's just your understanding of how Jesus is. But, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you're becoming a teacher in a particular fashion. You're teaching people by putting words in the mouth of Christ. They better be consistent with Christ. Uh, read James 3, first few verses there. Let not many of us seek to be teachers. Right, we'll be judged more strictly. Well, it is a teaching thing to put words in the mouth of Jesus. So, I'm not saying you can I'm saying you will be judged very strictly based on this, so you better have that strict judgment on your own content before it goes out. Just, yeah, God give you wisdom. I'm glad we have Christian game developers that care about that kind of stuff. That's wonderful, Ian. I I hope that God directs you. Chris Diaz says, I've heard you say that you don't agree with any of the points in Tulip. What do you believe about the natural condition of man? So, um, I believe that man is depraved. Um, I, the and, and you could even say like you could say totally depraved. I'm not I'm not sure how how I parse that term. Okay, so let me tell you the part of tulip total depravity that I disagree with. And I could be wrong. Okay, I just I really think this is what scripture te- is teaching me on this topic. But I'm definitely open to learning and understanding it better. Um, so my understanding total depravity in tulip in Calvinism includes something specific that is not just that you do sinful things not just that even when you do good things you often have ulterior or maybe even always have some kind of ulterior motive I don't know if I would agree with that um, that part of it and that's something I'm gonna get pushed back for <laughs> um, uh, I think that it's possible that people sometimes do good things for good reasons I and and the, I'm not kidding this seemed this may seem like a controversial theological point where I disagree with a lot of people so don't take my word for it that's just my current thinking on it and I'm open to correction um, but that is what I, my view is. Um, but I do not think for a second that people's good works are meriting them any standing before God when they stand before him on judgment day. I think that we're all, we're all very sinful. We're all very wicked. Just because I think someone could do something good doesn't mean I think they could just be good or that they ever, like put it this way, that they ever would be good. All of sin and fall short. I think that the description of man uh, before the flood, the thoughts of his heart are wicked all the time, that that, that, that does have application today. Um, so where do I disagree with Tulip though that is like why I would not consider myself Calvinist or Arminian is that the total depravity includes this concept that if the Holy Spirit starts to like internally make you aware, convicts you of sin righteousness and judgment to come Right, the, like Jesus said the spirit would convict us of sin righteousness and judgment to come And you're aware of the gospel of Christ is being preached to you that you lack the capacity To say yes That's an important point in total depravity And it's, an, it's a point uh, arminians and calvinists agree on that in our fallen state Right from birth on Hearing the gospel preached having the holy spirit convict us of sin righteousness judgment to come You will never say yes to god Because there's something in your will that is crippled. You don't have the ability to choose any different than rejecting God and rebelling against God. Here, we're not talking about earning your salvation. We're just talking about saying yes to the free gift of the gospel. There's no good work being performed that merits anything. It's just a yes to the gospel. I think people can do that. So that makes me not Calvinist because I I don't think... Because Calvinist, believing you cannot say yes to the gospel even... That's why they believe regeneration happens first. Boom, God regenerates you. Now, you can't help but say yes. Arminians have a different answer. They go, no, 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 no. It's it's not that God regenerates everybody, but it's that you have this thing called prevenient grace. So every person gets like, you're naturally fallen. You will always reject, but, but God does like a special work by his spirit in you to enable you to at least make the choice now. Now you can choose yes or no. Where I disagree with the Arminian is I don't see why I have to say we're in a fallen state and a special work has to be done to get me to the place to say yes or no. I think that you, you're you in a fallen state, but you can still say yes or no. There's my answer in a nutshell. And uh, I do have some videos on this in my video on what happens to babies when they die. I have two videos on that, but the first one, Um, Well, I guess and the second one I deal with sin nature in much more detail And if you guys are interested, um, I'll put a link below to that and maybe mods Maybe you could put a link to my two videos on what happens to babies when they die and the theological questions that that brings up And you put that in the comments Gene Robbins has a question if the word clear is used to describe a teaching in the Bible by two Christians with opposing views on the same teaching Wouldn't that void the effectiveness of using the word in that way? Uh, it just means one of them is wrong. So it doesn't mean both of them are wrong. I mean, at least one of them is wrong. One goes, clearly, this is this is what I would always see in commentaries. It drives me nuts, right? Commentaries go, well, obviously this. And oftentimes, people use the word obviously in commentaries to tell you something they're not going to defend. Because <laughs> they just go, well, obviously, and they move on. Now, sometimes, maybe it doesn't need to be defended, okay? I said earlier, obvi- it's just obvious to me that b- wearing bikinis is immodest. I didn't defend it. And somebody out there is going to be like, well, it's not obvious to me. And I'll be like, well, it's because you're immodest. (laughs) That's my answer. And so maybe you think I'm being rude, but I think that's the real situation. So I think there's a time to use the word clear and maybe people won't agree. Maybe someone else will say it's not clear the other way. But what I want to encourage you, Gene, is don't fall into the trap of feeling that because this guy says it's clear this way and that person says it's clear the other way, I can then have no clarity. That's an easy temptation, right? I'm looking to someone to tell me what to think on this issue. You say this is clear, you say the opposite is clear. What it just means is one, at least one of them, if not both of them are, are wrong. That's all it means. And then you can conti- conti- continue to pursue clarity. And you ask questions like, what makes it clear? Why is it clear that that's the case? And, um, and you, can, uh, you can go on. So it doesn't void the effectiveness of the use of the word in total, It just means that person was using it incorrectly. Um, yeah. Go to number 10 here. Dylan Rinker says, do you have any advice for dealing with a miscarriage? It's the first time in my life where I've been angry at God. I know he's sovereign, but it's difficult to accept. Thank you for your ministry. Dylan, you need to, like, I would encourage you to talk to someone who's gone through what you're going through, please. Um, the, what I've seen, okay, I've not experienced this. What I've seen in those who I know and care about who've shared some stuff with me about going through the same scenario miscarriage is that it, it was a, it's like a slow roller coaster, right? Roller coasters, they zoom down and then spinning around or whatever, but it's like that, but in slow motion and the, the amount of time it took at least a friend. I know I can talk about the amount of time it took for this thing to hit them. It was like wave after wave after wave. Right. And it was sort of this season of I'm, I'm angry, but I, but here was the key Dylan. And this is something that, that my friend had, she said that, and my impression from her was that she was angry, but she, she knew she treated her anger like a temptation and not like something she was choosing to own. And that's really important. I think that made a big difference for her. She's like, I, it's almost like you're outside of yourself, looking at yourself. I see myself being angry and I see this anger being directed at God, but I will hold back my own fist from God. And I will recognize um, this is how I'm feeling, this is how I'm being tempted, but I'm not gonna yield to this thing. And that to me is a, was a great, beautiful and wonderful spiritual thing to do, right? To say, yeah, I'm angry, I don't know how to fix my anger, but, I, but I, I'm not gonna take my anger and yield and give into it and ball up my fist and shake it at heaven because I don't understand the situation and no one's gonna explain it in a way that you, you're like, oh, I get it now, now I know why this happened. I mean, as, as if the why would make it better, Right? Like, I, I mean, if you knew, what if you knew why? What if there was some cosmic why? Like some plan of God why? And it wasn't just a sad, evil thing that God, God will redeem for good. But it was some, like God had intended it. Would that really even help? The, the, the fact is that, I, I, I don't know, maybe it would help you. But I think for a lot of people, it just comes down to this, like, the, the, this, this is a stress test. Like when you take metal and you see how much stress it can take before bending or breaking. This is a stress test of your trust in God. And in this, you will find that your trust is maybe weaker than you thought it was, but it will also become stronger than you ever had it before. Wait on the Lord. He will renew your strength. Take your time. Don't feel like you have to fix your emotions. Just know that you have to decide in the moment whether you will yield to them or not. And that's, I think, your key battle there. The temptations there don't yield to them. Take that frustration and bring it to God. Read the Psalms and see how the heart is poured out in the book of Psalms. There's like a there's a way to cry out to God in frustration, but yielded to God. And that's what Psalms does all the time. Like, why are you allowing this in my life, Lord? I don't understand. I'm going through all these things, but I trust in you, but I trust in you. And you get this over and over in the Psalms, this crying out of the heart. You had a choice to trust God. Like, Dylan, I hope that some of this encourages and helps you. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. Give it time. You're never going to get over it. Don't listen to anyone who thinks, well, do you need to get over it. That's garbage. No, but you will, you will become more grounded. You will become stronger and you will get your footing back and you just have to wait on the Lord and don't yield to the worst part of it. Um, other than that, I go back to the first thing I said, which is find someone who's gone through it and talk to them. They're going to understand it in a way nobody else does and may be able to give you some, some help. Yeah, God bless you. God help you. Lord, we pray that you'd help Dylan, help him and his family, help them to overcome and deal with this and to find your comfort and the way to navigate their anger that we all understand. Jesus' name, amen. Wrong way. Number 11, Andre B says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Andre. Does James 5, verses 14 and 15, say that a sick person should ask elders to pray for him, and he will always be healed? The text seems to be quite straightforward on this. Let's just look at the passage together. James chapter 5, in verse 14 is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Um, I could totally see why somebody thinks that. I can totally see it. Okay. Here's where a verse by, these two verses by themselves, I completely understand. Look, here's the deal. Right? Are you sick? You call for the elders. Okay, the elders pray over you. They anoint you with oil. They do it in the name of the Lord. And when they pray in faith, you will be restored. Right? The Lord will raise you up. And if it's a sin issue, maybe sin has been leading to your sickness, then you'll be forgiven. Right? God is always in the in the attitude to restore people <laughs> constantly. Um, so I can understand why somebody gets this every time is the feeling that they have on this passage. I think that we have to then bring in other scriptures to help give us clarity on that, okay? You can read it that way. Does it have to be read that way? Could it be in the context that James is writing to people who know that it's not every time, but this is the procedure? And what could be, what what could it be that the natural readers would know is the thing that might make it not every time? And I I think and I'm going to say something that might sound complicated, but I spent a lot of time on this. So follow with me here. (laughs) See if you agree. Um, And I'll link you to a video where I talk about more detail. Um, I think the thing, the pivot point could be this prayer offered in faith thing. Now, the faith healers will act like faith is something that you are going to have to stir up and you have to proclaim and believe. You choose to believe that God's going to heal that person. And if you believe it, it will always happen. Um, I think that this is provably false in practice because there are many people who really do believe that a healing is going to happen and it doesn't right if this kind of faith is present in these miracle services all the time yet there are countless people who go up for prayer and don't get healed there are people who are sick right now you might have like cerebral palsy or something like that you're listening to this thing and you're like oh i've believed i have believed that i was going to be healed got prayed for and I fully believed I was healed and then I tried to go about my life with healing and, it, and I wasn't and then others will point to you and be like see you lacked faith and I'll be like no I think you guys are misunderstanding a key element here in healing and that is going to be the, the will of God I think that when God heals he often will give special faith an awareness I'll put it this way let me change the word from faith here to an awareness he will give a special awareness that he's going to heal And he'll give that awareness to the person who's praying. This often happens. And it's not something they stir up. It's something God has gifted. He's giving an awareness of the healing. Now, I can build a case for this, and I have done it in a video I have called, um, oh, man, How Correct is Kenneth Copeland? I think that's the, I'm going to find it real quick. And I'm going to share it with you guys, okay? Because it's, I think, a really important video. this exact topic yes okay the thumbnail says how correct is kenneth copeland but the um let me get the link this the study is in my mark series and it's called a serious study of the best name it and claim it verse ever and i go through it in all the in all kinds of detail i'm going to link it right now i'm posting it in our live chat for you guys to, to to do i don't usually do that but i will post it right now there it is in the live chat um and you guys can check it out i'll even pin it because i think it's it's really important So that video, um, is where I go through this in much more detail, but here's the short version. Faith is a response to, to things God has revealed, right? It's not just faith. Like I choose to believe what I want to believe and that's faith, but faith here is meant to be a response to something God's revealing. If God is revealing that he's going to heal this person, then the prayer offered in faith includes that, that revelation. I think this is implied with Jesus. Jesus, when he heals, he says he only does that which the Father shows him. So when he heals someone, he's only healing people whom the Father shows him to heal, meaning that the healing is not triggered by Jesus, in a sense, it's triggered by the Father and his will. When we model this towards others and we pray for them, what is necessary is the will of God in the healing of man. And where that is implied subtly in James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, is that the prayer offered in faith, is the prayer in which I think the Lord is guiding the, the prayer the person doing the praying he's guiding them with an awareness that he's going to heal so that prayer that prayer which has been inspired by the Lord which is directed by him that will restore the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up but what about the situation where um, where the person isn't going to be healed where that's not simply isn't in God's plan for whatever reason and purpose I think the answer there starts with the word where, where James started I'm not even going outside of James Consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials which would include sickness wouldn't it knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing This is about character transformation when it's not about physical healing And so james uh, james 5 gives us a formula For churches dealing with sick the sick right pray for them anoint with oil and the prayer and faith which I think is instigated by god not man Brings their healing uh, but I, I, I look to the Lord to stir that up and to make it make us aware of of when that healing is going to happen. And I don't think if you just believe it hard enough, it'll always happen. I think that's provably wrong in the communities of people who do teach that. I think it, they believe with all their hearts, and it doesn't happen because that faith wasn't instigated by the leading of the Lord by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That'd be my my thought on that. I hope that it brings some help and some solace to people, and they go, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have illnesses, and they're like, "Lord, I'm willing to accept this, but I'm surrounded by people telling me I shouldn't be. That I should pray for it to be de- me to be delivered from it." And um, I think if James five isn't happening, James one should happen. Count it all joy, and that's okay. I keep going the wrong way with the counter there. Number twelve. This is from Wes Brown, who says thoughts on charitable giving. To organizations that I'm passionate about, but aren't overtly Christian, even if it's above my normal tithe, is this taking money away from kingdom advancement? Um, Wes, I don't see any issue there at all. Christians giving to an organization that's not overtly Christian. I think you've already answered the other question that naturally comes up, which is, are you taking all the money that you would be, say, using to support local ministries or other things? But if you look around, and you, let's say you have a Christian organization that's helping give food out to homeless people, and you have a, a non-Christian one, they're not preaching non-Christian, they're just giving food out, like it's just a food service thing. But when you look at them, you're like, wow, this one's way more efficient with their money, and they're accomplishing a lot more. And so you, you offer support to them. I, I don't think that that's like a wrong thing. I think you look at the scenario, and you make a good choice, and you go for it. So yeah, God give you wisdom in that. That's fine. But obviously, if I have an organization that is offering, this seems obvious to me, clearly, <laughs> with, with no, ex- no defense needed whatsoever of what I'm about to say, um, the, if you have two groups that are even, even somewhat comparable in the amount of practical benefit they bring people, but one of them brings the gospel of Christ and the other one does not, well, it seems obvious to me I want to support the Christian group because the gospel is of in, immeasurable benefit into people's lives. Um, But if you have a ministry that's like mishandling funds and things like that, then I'm not just going to support them because they say they're Christian. Like there's a, okay, there's a fish on your car. It doesn't mean that I have to hire you as my plumber. I also want you to be a good plumber. (laughs) So (laughs) that's kind of important. So yeah, I I hope that helps. Uh, Number 13, Keaton Duncan. The synoptics seem to indicate that the feeding of 5,000 took place. uh, The synoptic gospels, he means uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That The feeding of the 5,000 took place on the Sea of Galilee's west side, Matthew 6, but it seems to take place on the east side in John 6. How do we resolve this? Um, oh, gosh. On the top, off the top of my head, I don't know the answer because I don't remember all the details. Um, you say Matthew 6, 30 through 56. That's got to be a, a, a typo because that that's in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it could have been Matthew. You know, Matthew 16. No, maybe not. No, definitely not that. <laughs> I don't know where, where you met in Matthew. It wasn't six, though, because uh, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, yeah, when I did my study through Mark, I talked a lot about the geography that was going on and the different Gospels there. Um, yeah, Keaton, this is a question I would have to spend some time on. And or, or just happen to have it fresh in my mind and I, and I don't. I'd, I'd have to look at four different Gospels They're different accounts of the same event, compare and contrast the different details Look at why people say this happened at this location and that and I just don't have that off the top of my head So I'm sorry Keaton I'm going to pass on your question due to my own lack of knowledge at the moment Number 14, kinda Lynch says, is worrying Stress Stress slash anxiety a sin If so, could you provide some thoughts on reasons you think it is? Thank you for your great work um, thank you, uh, Kina, Kina, Kina. Uh, anyway, thank you for your encouragement there. Um, I do not think worrying or having stress is a sin. I do not think so. Um, I remember toying with the idea many years ago and I I never really thought it was, but um, I know I'd heard people act like they say, like, don't worry, you know, when you worry, it's a sin. I, I know I'd heard that, not much. It's not like that was pervasive in, in the Christian community I was in, it wasn't, but I know I heard it and I thought about it and I was like, oh yeah. And there feels, it feels like something's true about that, that there's like a certain kind of worrying that, that would be approaching like, you know, I could use the word sin, but let me, let me use a different word. Um, faithlessness or lack of trust. There's a kind of worrying that could be lack of trust. That could be like, God, I'm not believing, I'm not trusting you and your promises to me. And that that is an, a, a symptom of a very real problem in my life spiritually, and so the worry: um, what if I'm what if I'm not what if I'm not forgiven? Even though I've trust even though I trust in Christ, what if what if Jesus just isn't even real? What if all this? That kind of worrying is is a dangerous worry. Like to me, it's harmful to me. It's very much a problem, and it needs to be dealt with and resolved. I need to overcome this. I need to be at that place of security in my relationship with God and my trust in Christ. That's very important. So. Just calling it a sin might misdiagnose it slightly because it sort of misses out on the idea that you are being eroded from within. <laughs> like this is bigger than just um, you did something that was wrong, which is every sin's a big deal, but it's a different category, I'll put that, than just sin is a broad category. This is a more narrow thing. This is eroding my trust between me and God. That kind of worry, I think, is really problematic. So if my worry is like exhibiting a lack of trust in God, then there's a problem. But, and this is super important, worry doesn't mean you're not trusting God. Jesus had many worries. Do you, do you, he had worries. Let me take you um, let me take you to a passage where we read about this. Um, let me see if I can find it real quick here. And it should be Mark, I think it's 14. Here we go. Mark 14. Look at what Jesus. now look if Jesus could worry, then I can worry, <laughs> at least to some extent. At least to the extent he does, right? So let me uh, read it to you now. Um, this is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be betrayed. They're gonna they're gonna carry him away, and then you can have this like horrible night. He's gonna then be beaten and, and harassed and rejected and embarrassed and shamed, and then he's gonna be crucified. So this is right before that moment. Imagine how you would feel. In you know. The night before, you know you're going to be murdered. Slowly, publicly, shamefully, while all your fr- friends and family will reject you and be ashamed of you. And you will publicly be shamed. Um, and this is the moment he's, he's facing. And so he goes to pray. And they hear him uh, praying. But this is what Jesus tells the disciples. It says here in verse 33 of Mark 14. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. He is like really, really emotionally bothered. And he said to them, look at how he describes himself. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Jesus, we know from other scriptures, here's a real contrast. He had hope. He had confidence in his resurrection and in his eternal joy. Hebrews even tells us it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. But that doesn't mean that he didn't care about the suffering he was going to have. He was going to have, you know, experiencing. He he cared deeply about the suffering he would experience. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The sorrow, the hardship, the pain, the shame, the guilt of the, of the sin of the world being dropped upon Jesus, like the, the consequences of that sin, this stuff wrecked him. He used the strongest analogy he could to describe his emotional state, grieved to the point of death. If Jesus can be that grieved, or you could call that worried, then you can too. But not without hope, because like like Paul says, we do not sorrow as those without hope. That's the difference between the sorrow of the world and the sorrow of the Christian. The Christian knows that this is a temporary pain, as, as, as hard as it is to go through, as much as I'm concerned about it, even worried about what I know is coming or what I fear might be coming, I am yet beyond that. Equally confident or more so in the grace and the joy and the peace and the life that is coming after it. And so that's to me, a Christian can be down in the dumps, but we look beyond and we know we won't we won't stay there. And that that's what changes our our view of worry. Um so if your worry is connected to a lack of trust in God's goodness, uh, God's God's power, God's love, that's a real problem in your life. But if your worry is simply These are hard times, they're very unpleasant. I'm worried about the unpleasantness of the times. That's natural, that's understandable. And what we do to help ourselves through that, to keep from getting too low in in the grief and worry, is we remind ourselves of our eternal joys. And this is what we see consistently in scripture. Christians can feel the deepest, darkest worries and fears, but we know of our eternal joys. And there's always that crack of light shining through whatever we're going through because of it. 15, Julian Boone has a question. Is it wrong to attend a prosperity church with our in-laws when we visit them? Um, I don't think it's, in, I'm gonna answer quickly here, but I don't think it's inherently wrong. I think that, um, like for instance, if if I was near, like if let's say Kenneth Copeland had like an event near me, I there's a chance I would go just to see what they do, (laughs) just to like see the event and then maybe talk to you guys about it later and be like, oh, here's how the scam is run. I mean, yes, yes, it's a scam. Um, I went to a Jehovah's Witness thing just so I would better understand their service and the things that they do so that I would be better equipped to witness and minister to them. So I think it depends on like your purpose and your reasoning here. Um, if you go to this church, you could go so you could learn and understand what's going on here You can better understand your family You might be able to talk to them about the service afterwards It might open doors But if you're going to be influenced If there's a chance you're going to be drawn away with bad teaching then, then for your own sake, I say don't do it You know, don't step into that zone to protect yourself So I think it depends on your motives and your reasons And it's not inherently wrong Number 16, Kate's online name says My hubby was raised Mormon he still believes it all, but isn't active. He, uh, his family takes my son to church if he stays with them, and they've started teaching him LDS doctrine. I want to not let him go anymore without hurting them. Advice? Okay, this is super hard, okay? Katie's online name. This is like really hard because you and your husband are not in agreement here, or at least I'm assuming you're not. If you had your husband's agreement, you could go as a couple, Right, and if it's his, it's his family in particular. So then, it would I think he would be the one to go, um, and just tell them like, yeah, you know my, you know, you guys can't, you guys can't do this. You can't teach him this stuff, and he could drop that down. Now you don't have that agreement there, so you can't come united as the parents, and so it starts to get more complicated. I would encourage you first to talk to your husband about it. Try to get him on your page and say, look, um, this is how I feel, and. It, your options are you, you do your best to put your foot down without destroying your marriage. It's going to take a lot of tact and wisdom. Um, and if that doesn't work, which it may not, then you do your best to debrief your kids. That is you find out what exactly they're hearing, what they're being taught. You, this would be, is you can't be lazy about this. Like you'd have to actually find out that stuff. They're being taught so that they're equipped to understand the differences. They understand the, the, the way that Mormonism will be like when they encounter that environment, like I wouldn't be surprised if, if his if his uh, family is pulling aside your kids and saying, do you guys wanna pray right now that God will give you the, the the testimony of the Holy Spirit that the Book of Mormon is, is the word of God and that Joseph Smith is God's prophet? Like this is the kind of thing I'd expect them to do is to try to lead them in a prayer, seeking to evoke an emotional feeling that then they could then say, ah, we're Mormonism, which is like a Christian plus. In their view, Mormonism is Christianity but even better, right? Like whereas, whereas we look at it and we say, "This is apostasy, guys," um, which it is, um, just factually speaking, it's definitely not Christianity. Um, as much as I've got, I get hate from saying that. Um, so, yeah, those to me are your two options. You get your husband on board. You try to put your foot down as best you can as the mom who you you have authority. You have authority there, but it's not going to be easy with your split opinions about it. Um, and given the failure of that, you, you equip your kids because you can deny you the ability to talk to your own kids about these issues. So for that, yeah, I recommend doing some research, talking to your kids, finding out what they're going through. I have videos on Mormonism, but you might want more than that. Um, talk to your kids though. Talk to your kids. Yeah. Number 17, J- uh, Jamin Gordon, um, says, what are your thoughts on entire sanctification, and he put those as capitals. E capital E entire capital S sanctification. Could a Christian eventually live without sin through God's power? If not, shouldn't we shoot for it anyway? Thanks for your hard work. Um, here's my thoughts on this in a nutshell. <laughs> a Christian can can live a moment without sin. You'll be tempted, but not necessarily sin, sinning, right? So you can live a moment. Now, can you live several moments without sin? Can you live lots and lots of moments without sin? At least sin you're aware of, right? Because sometimes we sin and we later, are, we find out we did it and we later are like, well, I didn't even, wasn't even aware I was sinning. Um, but my problem with entire sanctification or with sinless perfectionism or with coming to a sinless state in this life is that it implies that there's like some point at which you enter a condition, right? Like, like you've it's almost like for Dragon Ball people I've not really never, never really been a fan of Dragon Ball but I'm aware that these Dragon Ball characters with <laughs> strange analogy I know would come with like you know they would they would go like super saiyan right like super isn't this where like their hair shoots up and stuff and their appearance slightly changes and you see super saiyan isn't just them trying really hard and doing well which is what I would consider a christian being sanctified is but rather super saiyan is like you reached a state where you now have new abilities and new powers you didn't have before. That's the part of sinless perfectionism or, or entire sanctification that I object to. Implying that Christians will reach a spiritual condition where they flip a switch and now they're there. Now they're elevated. Now their hair has, has, has shot up into the air and gone white and the wind is blowing and the lights are coming off and now they've got superpowers. That view to me is really problematic for a number of reasons. And one of them is that people who think they're in this place of sinless perfection are almost, in my experience, they're almost invariably arrogant. It just seems like all of them are suffering continually from the sin of pride. Um, the ones that I've encountered who s- say, oh, I've, I'm sinless perfection. It's like, you just see pride dripping off of them, which tells me they're not really, right? They, what they've done is they think they're, su- it, imagine, Okay, here's us draw this Dragon Ball analogy out to a guy who's done youth ministry. Imagine a junior hire who pretends he's going super saiyan And he's like, oh, I got all the power. And you look at him and you just think, you little dork. It's just you pretending. That is what I sometimes think when I see people saying that they've reached the state of sinlessness or entire sanctification. Is there like the junior hire pretending they've gone super saiyan when they really haven't? Which lowers their guard against sin. And creates a judgmental environment where they judge others for not reaching their level and that whole thing is because they're treating a daily battle like they've reached like a super saiyan level of spiritual you you get what I mean I'm sorry for using such a weird analogy I hope it it connects with you though so there's my thoughts on that um can a person not sin for extended period of time it certainly seems possible to me Um, is there a condition, state you reach? Boom! I'm there. I've reached the state of sinlessness. No, stop it. That's when we go to heaven. When we when we stand before God, we will no longer be in the flesh. When we stand in our new bodies, we will not have the flesh in the, even though we'll have a physical body. It won't be the flesh in that sense Paul talks about, where the flesh is constantly tempting you. You will be in a daily battle as a Christian until the day you are no longer in the flesh then you will reach that state, okay? So yeah, I we'll would be super saying that. <laughs> Number 18, Michael Ees says, I've heard some Christians songs, some Christian songs say Christ was nailed to a tree instead of a cross. Would you happen to know why the two terms are interchanged? So Michael, this one's uh, easy for me here. So they're interchanged in the Bible. In the Bible, we have texts that say he was nailed to a tree, and others that say he was nailed to a cross. And to understand this, you have to understand that they don't mean the tree and the cross like they're two different things. They mean them like they're the same thing, because a cross is, is very large pieces of wood, probably the trunk of a tree. And so he's nailed to a tree. It's just not a tree that's alive and planted and growing in the ground. He's nailed to a tree in that sense it's the cross is a tree um, and one of the reasons why the why the blurring of a tree versus a cross I think has happened is because of a prophecy I, I should, I'll call this typology more in the Old Testament with Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy the Jews are told that if a person is um, is killed by execution so they would usually stone them generally speaking there were other things but usually it's stones um, then they would hang them on a tree. This was, part of the, this was just expected in the culture of the Middle East at the time. A person who was executed was put on display as d- a deterrent for everyone else. But God didn't want that person staying on the tree. They would hang him up on a tree. So he tells them, if a person is, is executed and hung on a tree, don't leave them overnight take them down off of that tree and bury them because I don't want to defile the land with just dead bodies just hanging there, right? God doesn't want to do that. You've dealt justice, fine. You showed everybody this has happened. Now take him down and, and bury him. So he changed that practice. Now, when you come to the Septuagint, this is like the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Deuteronomy passage is is translated a little differently and they translate it as though it refers to crucifixion. This is really This is really neat history stuff. So the, the more Greek Jews, they're looking at that Deuteronomy passage, which was probably a stoning. And then they were hung on a tree and more more often than not, not that they couldn't have been hung by their neck on the tree, but more often than not stoning and then hung on the tree. In this case, we're looking at the tree as a, as a way of killing someone as a way of not only killing them, but also leaving their bodies up on display afterwards, which is what God doesn't want. So that's how they translate that Deuteronomy passage in the Septuagint. Then you get to the time of Jesus. And they look at this and they say, hey, this is all about Christ. They go, look, God says the person hanging on a tree is cursed. Jesus, and this is what Paul does in Galatians. I think it's Galatians 2. Jesus, he became a curse for us on the cross. Just like the person hanging on a tree is cursed because they've experienced the death penalty. Jesus became the curse, took the curse of Adam, uh, on, of sin and death, and he bore it on the cross. He died, and the person hanging on the tree is cursed. It was a picture, uh, picture meant to draw like our eyes open to see the depth of the death of Christ, that he dies for all of us as a penalty, a punishment, a, a curse to suffer for our sins that we've committed. So he dies on a tree. So the blurring is, is intentional. It's legitimate because trees and crosses are made of the same material, Um but it's intentional because it's meant to show the typology of jesus becoming cursed for us on the cross i think it's neat stuff so i still want to blur it blur it not not confuse it not not like we're saying things wrong but i want to like make sure we keep in front of our minds that symbolism that's there in the deuteronomy passage number 19 christine says in genesis 19 verses 6 through 8 does lot why does lot offer his own daughters to the wicked people of sodom thanks for your ministry that's a good, That's a question we all ask in that passage. Um why does Lot do this? I'll offer you a couple uh, some thoughts on this. Um often people will explain this passage. <clears throat> well, let me first just catch everyone up. Lot he's considered like a righteous man. Doesn't mean everything he does <coughs> Pardon me. It doesn't mean everything Lot does is good and holy, but he's considered a a, a good man um in the in the text here. And he's amidst a very wicked people. Sodom and Gomorrah are the classically parad- paradigm example of a wicked city and wicked cities of people. So these angels go down in the disguise of, of humans. Like they kind of look like humans and they go down to check out Sodom and see how bad it really is. And the way they treat these angels, these tr- they, the way they do hospitality towards these angels, if they're kind to them or mean to them, will, will demonstrate the wickedness of the city as a whole. What they do is they, uh, Lot comes, he sees the angels, the men that look like men. They're standing in the courtyard and Lot's like, you guys shouldn't stay out here. You're going to get killed. Like they're going to mistreat you. I know my city. It's not, it's not good for you to be here. And so he takes them into his own home. And then the people from the city gather around the home and they demand that Lot give them the people, these, these, these angels, these men, and that they would be able to abuse them sexually. And so the sins of Lot are seen as um, sexual depravity, as well as in uh, not being hosp, hospitable not having hospitality but these two are connected they're, they're they're really talking about the same issue they were trying to abuse these men Lot he comes up with a different solution when they demand now keep in mind Lot's outnumbered they're outside of his house he can't actually stop them so he decides to negotiate and he says uh, when they demand they, you know we want to see where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to uh bring them out to us that we may have relations with them they, they wanted to molest them but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, and this is his solution. This shocks us as much as Sodom does. It seems to shock us. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let me bring them out to you and do, that. do to them whatever you like. Only do no, do nothing to these men in as much as they've come under, my, under the shelter of my roof. There's a lot we don't know here. Okay, we don't know if the daughters were what they thought about this. Uh did the daughters say to to Lot, "Oh, we offer ourselves," like if it'll if it'll satisfy the crowd. We offer ourselves, which would make it a, a a self-sacrifice thing, which is a different connotation, or was it Lot saying this and the daughters are in the house going, "What? You're doing you're going to what?" you know, like we don't know. Okay, I don't know and sometimes we guess at filling in those details and it changes the way we view the story because that's a big moral question. I've got what did the daughters volunteer this? And Lot's their spokesman, or is Lot spoke, speaking for them? And they're like, "You, you want to what?" Um, some would explain this by culture, and they say, "Look, culturally speaking, um, when people enter into your home, you are responsible for protecting them, uh, even above your own goods and your own family." Apparently, I mean, this is what some people have said. This to me feels a little bit like okay, I kind of understand. Lot feeling an obligation to take care of these, these, these men who are angels to take care of them because of taking them into his home. And this obligation may have been heightened because lot may have had some recognition. These aren't just men. Like there may have been this sort of intuition, like this is from God. These guys are from God. And it may be that lot has an awareness that of, of how important this is. Okay. So like if, if I, for instance, had, um, um, say some amazing president it's hard to say an amazing president in, in America nowadays but, for the past several years but um but anyways I had an amazing president that was in my home and people wanted to hurt him and I'm thinking well I mean I'd rather them hurt my own family than hurt the president because of what he represents okay I'm not suggesting that this is the right move I'm trying to understand the logic that maybe a lot had going on in his head at any rate it's still hard to swallow Lot, what are you doing? But let me add one factor that I think is super important. The passage does not say Lot is doing the right and best thing here. In fact, what happens next is the angels don't allow this t- thing to take place. The angels blind the people that are out there that want to come and do this to them. They, they blind them and then they're able to walk out without being harmed. What i'm suggesting is there's a difference between what lot does lot is being rescued lot is a man who's being rescued from amidst of a midst of a wicked people he is not the, he is not like god's messenger doing all of god's things and so i don't feel like i have to defend his move and that's my encouragement to you um, christine you don't have to defend Lot's move here it's good to understand it good to ask questions about it why is he doing this were the daughters offering this was it just him um Was it, was it, was he thinking they're going to kill all of us? It'd be better for two to die than all, or for two to suffer than all. Like, was it one of those horrible moral situations that where people ask, what would you do in this scenario? And every answer seems wrong. I don't know the answers to all that, but I also don't have to make Lot the good guy. I don't. Lot was not as depraved as them, but that doesn't mean that everything he did was right. That's... Important to recognize. The Bible's full of characters who God is rescuing who are not necessarily right about all they do. Even if they're called righteous in some sense, it doesn't mean they're right in everything they do. So I think that that's an important thing to understand. I hope that I've helped answer a couple of those questions. And um, yeah, we have such little data on that particular story. That's what we got. Last question for today from Golden Child, who says, When Christians sin, Are they condemned again until they ask for forgiveness? Um, So when you say condemned again, I'm going to take that to mean that the question is like, do they like lose their salvation until they ask for forgiveness? And I think the answer here is going to be no. Um, I think that the New Testament would look very different if that was the case. Right? Because imagine if, The moment I, and I I felt like this as a a younger Christian, because I was so ignorant about many, many things that like, oh, I'm aware of a sin I committed. Like, what if I died right after I committed that sin? You know, am I going to go to hell? I think that we have to think in other terms, that when it comes to Christians, the question is, am I in Christ or am I not in Christ? Because if I'm in Christ, consider this positional language. My position is I'm in Jesus. I'm in him. His righteousness covers me. I am saved. That's that's that. I am saved. Now I may have a question about how many re- what rewards I'll get in heaven, like what things I've done here will carry forward into eternity. But but my actual eternal life is is purely gift by Christ. When we focus more and entirely on condition, and especially in the most extreme version of that, where I think if I have one sin, boom, I've lost my salvation until I repent. There's a lot of problems with this. One of them is, okay, like I said, the New Testament doesn't counsel this. It doesn't tell you if you commit a sin, you've lost your salvation. Instead, it uses other terminology. I'll go to 1 uh, John 2, which I think is, um, to me, absolute go-to passage on this, right? My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But then it gives a hypothetical. And But if anyone sins, it doesn't say we've lost our salvation. Instead, it just talks about your position in Christ. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus has, he's paid for my sins. I'm in him. He's my advocate. I, I don't want you to sin. But if you have, you're in Jesus and you're forgiven. It's a different question whether or not my continual sins reveal that maybe I'm not really Christian. That's a separate issue. But I'm just saying a Christian who sins, No. They don't lose their salvation. There's other problems it brings up too, though. Um, if, if, if you as a Christian lose your salvation when you sin, you've probably lost, we've all lost it because we're probably all in possession, spiritually speaking, of sins we have not repented of. Like there are things you've done that you didn't repent of. You were rude to your wife this morning and you just you didn't even think about it afterwards. You never re- you'll never repent of it because it'll never occur to you. You thought a selfish or lustful thought and you didn't repent of that one. So like my, my thought is that that kind of repentance of each and every individual sin, perfectly repenting, like that just doesn't it's just not realistic, because I'm not really that spiritually aware to be able to repent of every single thing. I often find out later, boy, I did something wrong. I didn't even realize I was doing. And then I hopefully I turn from that. I turn you know, and I trust in God for His grace. But I'm in Christ, and that to me is very important. Your your position in Christ means that if you sin you are still saved your um your condition your behavior in your life it might reveal something's wrong with your position like i might sin a lot and it tells me maybe i'm not really serious about this christian thing maybe i'm deceiving myself about my faith in christ um, about my honest commitment to him but the solution isn't oh well i just have to sin a lot less and then i can be saved rather it's no i have to i have to just wholesale turn to christ trust in him positionally be in him and then he's going to work in me to will and do according to his good pleasure so that um rep- the fruits of repentance the, the godly life is all fruit of the work of god in my life i'm just interested in the work of god in my life i hope that that is gives you some clarity gives you some answers there you sin and then you get hit by a bus you are still saved i'm just saying <laughs> don't 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 run out in the street though without looking like this is not wise All right, you guys, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure and a joy to do this stuff with you. Um, I do remind you again, if if you're a supporter, financial supporter for this ministry, for Bible Thinker, um, just your Cornerstone account's being canceled as of right now. We're here at the end of September in 2021 here, and we're canceling Cornerstone. It's not able to really handle all of our international issues and some of the questions you guys have in giving that it's like really kind of a clumsy system for a larger international thing that we do as opposed to like a local thing that I think they're designed for. Kindful is going to be much better for that. We've done a lot of research to make sure we have a good system for that. You'll have to go to the website to BibleThinker.org. You can donate and start your Kindful giving there. We're canceling all the Cornerstone stuff for you. And um, if you have the BibleThinker app, make sure that you update it on your smartphone. Um, Just go to the store and you can do that, and that will be fixed there as well. That is about all I got for you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mods, for being there. I very very much am grateful for you guys. This ministry is very exciting to me. We're reaching so many people with free content uh, to just grow their walk with Christ and their knowledge of Scripture. And it's an absolute honor and, and privilege to be part of it. So thank you all. Take care.